0: Hi. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, with the goal of engaging the city and impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is from our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. If you want to know more about Calvary Baptist Church and its ministries, head over to www.cbcnyc.org. Let's go to God in prayer before we look to His Word. Our Father and our God, we uh, thank you this morning that we come before you as your people, as your children, redeemed from the domain of darkness and brought into the glorious light of your kingdom, of your Son. We In this we rejoice, but God, uh, to live as your kingdom people requires that we live in a way that is uh, uh, an alternate, a contrast society to the, to the ways of the world. But quite often we fail that, God. We thank you that you're patient with us. You're kind to us. You have empowered us to live such lives through your spirit. You have given us your word for instruction. And this, mo- uh, this morning, as we look to your word for your instruction concerning marriage in a kingdom way of life, I pray that you would teach us by your spirit, open our hearts, help us to, uh, to come to conviction, confession, repentance, whatever else necessary, so that we may indeed, in this area of life, as in all of our life. Be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ for what you are doing in this world in restoring and renewing this world to your creational intentions. Uh, we thank you that you're able to do this in us where we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we uh, look to a, a difficult topic for many of us uh, on marriage, divorce, and uh, remarriage. Um, you know, the the advantage of preaching expositionally from through the books of the scripture is that uh, what you preach depends on not what topic you chose, but what God would have you speak from his word to his people from that following passage from the previous week. So as much as we want to listen to Jesus about what he has to say about salvation, uh, about uh, uh, anything else, we also need to listen to him about what he says about marriage. So, this morning, uh, if you're here and uh, you're here, and I don't know where in the spectrum of marriage, divorce, and remarriage that you fall, uh, but I hope that your takeaway from here is uh, not condemnation, but knowing that God is faithful and that God's grace is enough, uh, God's forgiveness is available, and that uh, we will go singing as we have been singing all along that God is faithful, that His grace is enough. We continue on in the Gospel of Mark, but uh, I have a question, an answer for this is not so much an answer I want to hear, but an answer I want to see. How many of you here, uh, if in any way or form, you have been affected by divorce, whether your own or uh, someone in your family, your parents, your siblings, uh, how many of you here would say you've been uh, affected by divorce, see see your hands? Several of you, It's it's a hard topic, it's a difficult topic, but as in all things, we need to listen to what Jesus has to say concerning this. We, have, we are still in that third uh, section of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus makes his way from uh, the northern Galilee all the way down to Judea and to, to Jerusalem. And along the way, he instructs his disciples on what it means to be his followers, what it means to be a disciple of the one who is the servant king. And he prepares them, not only for his death and his uh, his, uh, resurrection that are going to take place in Jerusalem, but as to how they ought to continue the mission for which he has called them. In this third section, uh, Mark bookends the section with the healing of two blind men, and everything in between ought to be seen in light of these two episodes, where uh, the disciples also are blind concerning uh, who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, and what it means that he is the Christ. And the question that we need to ask ourselves as we look through these passages is, will the disciples also be healed of their blindness as these two blind men were healed? Uh, in this middle section, Jesus predicts three times about his reason for going to Jerusalem, that he will be handed over to the authorities, that he uh, would suffer at their hands, that he would die, and that he would be raised again on the third day. And we have already seen two of these predictions. And with every one of these predictions, the, the disciples respond uh, uh in inappropriate ways for the first time when he announces that that was his mission Peter who had just confessed him as Christ rebukes him because in Peter's expectation the Messiah is not the one who should suffer at the hands of his enemies the Messiah should cause the suffering of his enemies but Jesus rebukes Peter because Peter's expectations Peter's thoughts are aligned with Satan and not with God's ways and God's mission for his son for the Christ and then Jesus goes on to instruct them what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple is to deny oneself, to take up the cross, to, to be last of all, to be servant of all, to die uh, for the sake of, for his name's sake, for those who seek to save their lives will lose it. But those who lose their lives for his name's sake will save it. And then we saw the, the second prediction in chapter nine, where again, Jesus announces his intent and, and, his, and the fulfillment of his mission to suffer and die and to rise again. And, and the disciples have, while he is walking in that path of servanthood, servanthood that would even cost him his life, his disciples have been discussing along the same way of who among them was the greatest. And they're even afraid to mention what they were discussing. Maybe they were ashamed. But Jesus again instructs them that for them to follow him means they should be willing to be the last of all, to be even the servant of all, because he, even the son of God, has, it's put in Mark 10:45. 45, uh, even, even the son of God, the one who should expect everyone to serve him, even he, he says he didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for everyone. Uh, and uh, if that's the case, those who follow him ought to have that same attitude of being last of all, being servant of all, and not seek to be the greatest of all. This morning, when we come to this uh, ongoing teaching concerning discipleship, we find that... Uh, not only does discipleship include uh, holiness and uh, being the salt of the earth in, uh, in bringing the, the flavor and the preservation of the kingdom, a way of life to this world. We see Jesus speaking of marriage in the section that we see today. Then he will speak about children in, in the section we will see next week. And then about possessions in chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. What do these things have to disi- do with discipleship? Everything. Because when we often think of discipleship, we narrow that into some uh, spiritual life category—our prayer life, or our uh, attendance at church services, or serving in various ministries. All of those are included in discipleship. So also uh, proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the life, uh, ends of the earth. But discipleship, proclamation, being witnesses of the Lord Jesus, is not limited to word. Is not limited to certain areas of life, but it's all of life. Because God has redeemed us in our entirety and with our entire being, we are to testify to who he is, what he is doing in this world through Christ Jesus and what he will do for the whole world when Christ returns. And that means marriage, uh, family life with children, our possessions, all come under the authority, under the lordship of Jesus. And we follow Jesus in all of these areas as well. So it is right that we find this discussion on marriage right under a section where Jesus is instructing people on what it means to be a disciple. That's why I go through this outline just about every week because we need to find where this particular instruction falls into uh, what Jesus is doing and in his life. So marriage is teaching on marriage and divorce is not just some general teaching that Mark threw in because yes, to Jesus says something about marriage also, but it's all about what we have been talking about from the beginning. What does it mean to follow Jesus the servant king? That includes our marriages. And what he has to say concerning divorce and remarriage as well. We look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 12 in three sections. First, the Pharisees come and ask Jesus a question, and, and I'm sure what was annoying to them, Jesus responds not with an answer, but with a question for them. And then they this time answer correctly, but Jesus reorients, reframes their question because they're asking the wrong question. They ought to be asking something else. And then the disciples who previously were afraid to ask Jesus for an explanation because either they didn't want to look dumb or they were discussing something they should not have. This time they, they do well. They actually ask Jesus for an explanation and Jesus teaches them privately a, a further explanation on what he has been talking about to the Pharisees. So turn with me to 10, one to 12. We read in 10, one to three. Well before that, uh, before we go there, uh, we, I said discipleship is following Jesus who is the servant king. Uh, discipleship is entering into a kingdom way of life and the kingdom way of life has to do with all of life and so also with marriage. Uh, I liked what I read this morning uh, from one of, uh, someone who's becoming a favorite uh, Old Testament scholar for me, Ellen Davis. She says concerning the kingdom of God and, and way of life in the kingdom of God, she says God means to draw us into the genuinely human life that the biblical writers call God's kingdom or sometimes eternal life that abundant life that doesn't begin when you die, but rather when you start focusing on what God is doing, living no longer out of your own whims and fears, but out of the possibilities that God's action opens for you. Kingdom way of life in all areas is God's way of life, and that's the way of life for our flourishing, not to put a burden on us, not to uh, take away our joy, but To give us what is true joy. To live according to God's purposes. And living according to God's purposes includes our marriages. So we read in 10, 1 to 3. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? He left there when the gospel writers give us geographical details. It's not just to find a place on the map, uh, but it has something to do with the narrative uh, where he's making his way from uh, Southern Galilee through uh, down to Judea, and we are told that he's in the region of Judea already, beyond the Jordan. This is where Herod rules, not far from there. The last time somebody brought up marrying and divorcing with Herod, what happened to that person? Lost his head. Right? so as, this, this, as this, this Pharisees try to trap Jesus in the this section, maybe that that is their m o that they they want to trap Jesus so that maybe they could provoke Jesus into saying something that will infuriate uh, Herod and they can get rid of Jesus the same way uh, Herod took care of John. That could very well be their intent, and that could very well be why the Gospel writer Mark here includes these details and as Jesus makes his way, we are told that crowds gather again. The crowds were always there, often hindering what Jesus was doing. Uh, So crowds are not always a good thing, but the last couple of chapters, Jesus has been primarily instructing his disciples to whom his mission will be entrusted after his death and his resurrection and his ascension. But now the crowds are back, and, and when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, most of his ministry will be public, where he'll be teaching in public. And we are told that as was his custom, he taught them. If you remember way back in chapter one, and the people of Capernaum asked him to stay there, Jesus says, no, the, the, he has been sent by God to proclaim, to teach in all the towns. Uh, his primary mission uh, so far has been teaching and he continues to be faithful to that mission of teaching. But who, look who's also present, Pharisees came up and they came to test him. Pharisees, the last time he saw them was in chapter eight, where again, they were trying to test him by asking him to perform signs and wonders.
1: Here they are again to
0: test him, and the word for testing is the same word that Mark used of Satan testing Jesus. They're not here to find out, uh, uh, to learn something. They're here to trap Jesus, to maybe get him to say something that would show that uh, uh, his interpretation of the Mosaic Law is not in uh, line with what the official position was or maybe to get him to say something that will discredit him with the eyes, of, uh, in the eyes of the public and his popularity with them. Whatever the reason, they came to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The question is asked differently in Matthew's Gospel where the question is, on, on what grounds can a man divorce his wife? Uh, but here, the, the, it appears that the legality of divorce itself is being uh, questioned. Uh, some writers think that, uh, uh, this question probably ought to be understood in the same sense as we would understand if someone would ask us can a 16 year old drink obviously we're going to conclude that uh, we're not they're not asking about water uh the question is is can a 16 year old drink alcohol right in the same way it is uh, probably this question ought to be understood again as in the gospel of matthew on what grounds can divorce take place because at that time according to jewish tradition divorce as a male privilege, as something a husband could do was taken for granted. And uh, the only question that remained was on what grounds could divorce take place? Uh, When Jesus asks uh, them, what did Moses command you? Jesus knows very well that Moses didn't command anything about divorce. And they need to find out and they will answer correctly but the passage in question that uh, Jesus is sending them to, and on the basis of which they ask their question, is Matthew chapter—I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4, where we read: When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife and after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. That was a mouthful. Uh, Excruciating details here. But notice, in all the details, there is no mandate to divorce. Moses is not making a statement about divorce, but rather he's regulating a practice where he's in the case of a a man who has previously divorced his wife from remarrying that same woman. So in that case, he says, when the first divorce happens, a man ought to give the certificate of divorce. And that is a protection for the woman because the woman would not be accused of adultery if she has a certificate of divorce, if she were to marry another person. And he's also protecting the woman again. God is protecting the woman again through this law uh, in that if that woman were to uh, remarry and she is either divorced or her second spouse dies, the first man can't take her back because that would most often be to exploit her again. Uh, either to take advantage of her, either to get a second dowry, or to maybe gain an inheritance that she had from the second man. So it's all regulated for the protection of the woman, but the issue is not the permissibility or the legality of divorce. And uh, so Moses never commanded divorce, and the Pharisees answered correctly. They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. See, there were at least two, if not more, schools of thought on what Moses had permitted or allowed because Moses leaves it kind of open-ended because if if then she finds no favor, notice it's the man. It's not about God or it's about his intent for marriage. The man somehow, the woman somehow finds no favor with his eyes, uh, with the man's, the husband's eyes. And the reason is because he found something, some indecency in her. And the question at that time was, what exactly is this indecency that Moses wrote about? The more conservative school, the Shammai school, they they interpreted the indecency as adultery and that was the only grounds they said Moses had permitted divorce, would be on the grounds of adultery. But the Hillel school was far more liberal and they said the indecency could extend to anything, even if she were to burn his dinner and it was the very first time he burned uh, his dinner, then she no longer finds favor with him, and it's an indecency, and he could do it. It's true. It's, a, it's part of the, uh, the, the commentary on this section, uh, the Mishnah uh, says that. There was another rabbi named Akiva. He even says uh, if he finds a better looking woman, he could divorce the first and give a certificate of divorce. The things have not changed. The, the things remain the same under the sun. All right? So, What these Pharisees are trying to do is to see which school of thought that Jesus aligns himself with, but Jesus does not play into their game. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Uh, Jesus first provides the context for Moses' statement. Moses' allowance, Moses' permission is is because of their hardness of heart. The hardness of heart, same word is used to children of Israel in the wilderness wanderings, used of Pharaoh. Hardness of heart has to do with rebellion against God. It's a refusal to submit to God's way of life. It's because of that since the fall that God has made a concession, a permission to divorce. has never been God's intent, which is where God, Jesus, is going to take them to. So if to argue for divorce Uh, the permissibility of divorce is to admit to one's hard-heartedness toward God. That's the context uh, uh, with which uh, this whole permission was granted. Uh, So where does Jesus send them if they want to know? It's not to the end of marriage. That's what the Pharisees want. How can a marriage end? Jesus says when it comes to marriage, the first question is not how can you end it? It's to what is God's intent for marriage? That ought to be the first question. Recently, I, I... read about this basketball player, a former basketball player, I think it was San Antonio Spurs or something like that. Uh, anyway, it was, this is an old incident, but it just came to the press recently where uh, apparently uh, he was about to get married and three months before the wedding date, he had asked uh, the woman to, dry, uh, to sign a prenup and she just dragged her feet and on the day of the wedding, she still hadn't signed it, so he just left her at the altar. Uh, so, even before the marriage had begun, uh, he had taken steps to protect himself in the case of the end of the marriage by seeing whose property is what right so uh, uh, the the intent was not about the wow that they're going to make before God that the, till death do us part, but it's question about when do when we do part, who gets what so the Pharisees are doing something similar in that they want to know more about how can a marriage end, rather then what is God's intent? So when Jesus asked them to see what Moses has commanded you, he wanted them not only to look to Deuteronomy 4, but go to the place where he's taking them now. So Jesus tells them, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. If you want to know about marriage and what, uh, whether divorce can happen or, or a remarriage can happen, you don't start with Deuteronomy 24. You go to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to the beginning, to the very beginning, the beginning of creation, because that's where God's intent for marriage and for all of creation is made known. Genesis 1 and 2 are there in, a pla- in their place for a reason. Everything that follows ought to be read in light of Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, someone told me about those who are doing that God... God's big picture study uh, about how lights went off for them when they, wrought, when they saw how uh, the, the uh, Genesis one and two set the course for what happens for the rest of scripture and Revelation 21 and 22 will wrap that up as we will see. But here, what was God's intent for marriage? But from the beginning, every, every phrase that Jesus is quoting from the same passage we heard read, but he also ha- adds his instructions in verse nine. First, God made them male and female. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. See, God creates them as male and female, as we heard in the passage that we read, to reflect His image, to be His image bearers. So within God, within the Godhead, you find equality and differentiation. Uh, Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in essence; they are of the same essence. They are all equally God, but there is a differentiation of persons. Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons within that one Godhead. So to bear God's image, there has to be both oneness and differentiation, equality and differentiation. So the oneness of humanity is differentiated as male and female. Uh, without that difference, differentiation, we can't truly image God because there's only sameness, there's no differentiation. So God made the male and female. That's, that's the beginning of all ethics, marital ethics, sexual ethics. Everything starts there. Who did God make us to be? And not only did God make the male and female, we're told, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Remember what we heard, read. You know, God, uh, you know, after declaration of, declaration of what he did was good, he says, you know, it's not good. And the one thing that God himself in his self-evaluation finds out not good is for man to be alone. So God sets up about providing a wife for, his, uh, for this man and uh, there's this naming exercise of these animals. It's not just a mere naming exercise. It's toward the end of finding a suitable partner for the man, and man finds quickly enough as he went through these animals. I don't know if he paused when he went past the gorilla, but uh, <laughs> whatever it was, the partner was not to be found in the rest of creation. So God makes one suitable for him. Taken from his side, sameness, differentiation yet female. And God brings these two distinct persons into a unity, one flesh. So whenever there's a marriage that happens, it's a wonderful creational work of God where he takes two and makes it into one. That's God's intent for marriage because in that differentiation, in that oneness, they reflect God's image. And then Jesus follows that with that instruction. What God has joined together, let no man separate. We are used to hearing this in wedding ceremonies, but it's a It's one of the central theological affirmations here concerning marriage. There are two actors here. There's God, and who's the other one? Man. Let God has joined, let man not separate. God has done a work. God has done a work in taking two and making them one, and now for man to separate, that the word is for divorce, if for man to separate what God has joined is to work against what God has done and what God is doing. Divorce has never been God's intent for marriage. God's intent is to bring the two together into one so that together they reflect God's image. And when man divorces, it's working against God's intent, God's creational intent. This is a hard saying. No wonder the disciples who had previously uh We're a little reticent to ask Jesus for what he meant. Come and ask him this time in verses uh, 10 through 12. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. He's explaining what he said in verse 9 when he said, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So what God has joined together remains even if divorce has taken place. That's why even if a man divorces his wife, divorce has taken place. Jesus acknowledges the reality. But for that person to go and marry someone else, he says that's tantamount to adultery because that one-flesh relationship that God established still remains in God's eyes. God doesn't cancel his work because of our working against him. And also notice previously in the the Jewish tradition, only the male had the privilege of divorce, but here Jesus acknowledges, doesn't permit, acknowledges that even a woman could initiate the divorce. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery, same verdict. Uh, What God has joined together, let no man separate. If they do separate, if they remarry, it's tantamount to adultery. What Jesus does is take this concession concerning uh, divorce and places it, uh, under the commandment of adultery, thou shalt not commit adultery, is the greater commandment, and the, and the, uh, and the violation that of that commandment is when divorce has taken place and remarriage takes place. So God's intent for marriage and divorce, as Jesus tells these Pharisees and his disciples, is to this exclusivity between a male and a female, and those two only. And there's a permanence to that marriage and there's fidelity because as we are going to see marriage is a figure that points to a greater truth a greater reality to God himself so what does this have to say to us as we saw in the beginning all of us have been affected by divorce in one way or the other the first lesson before we even look at anything else is that uh, discipleship that is following Jesus the servant king involves all of life including our marriages especially our marriages Uh, I remind us again of the words of Ellen Davis about what it means to live in the kingdom of God. God means to draw us up into the genuinely human life that the biblical writers call God's kingdom or sometimes eternal life. That abundant life that doesn't begin when you die, but rather when you start focusing on what God is doing, living no longer out of your own whims and fears, but out of the possibilities that God's action opens up for you. God's instructions concerning divorce and remarriage is not a restriction, a constriction of our joy, but actually when we live according to His purposes for all of life, including our marriage life, we actually are opened up to God's possibilities, God's abundance, God's flourishing, a greater purpose for our lives as husbands and wives. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have been brought into this way of life that is normative for the kingdom of God that has drawn near in Jesus and will be consummated at his return. Uh, we are empowered by, this is not something we are left to ourselves to do. God has empowered for this, us for this kingdom way of life, for flourishing by giving us his spirit. And when we live that life, we, we are witnesses to who God is and what he is doing in this world through Christ and what he will do to complete that work. And that way of life is a witness beyond our words. Our marriages point to God, to his son and all that by the power of the spirit so let's begin with jesus who is jesus mark tells us at the very first verse the gospel of jesus christ the son of god so if jesus is christ jesus is lord jesus is son of god then jesus has the right to author, uh, interpret scripture for us if we want to know what this passage means we go to jesus and who he is and what he has said concerning this and how that passage points to him His authority is not limited to so-called spiritual matters, but extends to all of life, including marriage, sexuality, gender issues, family, possessions. In everything, the first question we ought to ask is, what does uh, tradition permit? Uh, What does societal norm? Uh, In all matters of life, we submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. What does he say? What are his teachings on these things? Uh, He bears God's authority to to speak to us concerning these matters, and what his authoritative teaching is true for the church at all times, no matter how culture shifts around us. You know, we live—we live, we live uh, in a culture where, till the end, till the middle of the 20th century, uh, d- divorce was rare. Not necessarily because of biblical convictions; quite often because of societal conventions, because it was shameful to divorce and so on. But uh, after the 1950s and so on, uh, more or less divorce has become the norm and, and there are some churches that are legalistic and shame people who are divorced and so on, but they are rare and they're wrong. But they're also, most churches are actually permissive concerning this. The church is no different than the world and we have no witness to the world. See, Jesus has come to restore God's creation according to God's creational intent that requires all of life be reoriented according to God's purposes. Uh, See, the law regulated life under the fall. That's what Paul tells us in Galatians. The law was given till Christ came. Now with the coming of Christ, the concession is gone. We are called to live according to God's kingdom purposes as Jesus tells us. Uh, He does that over and over again. In the Sermon on the Mount, for example, you you say, do not murder. I say to you, kingdom way of life, you should not even get angry at your brother. Uh, he said that concerning food laws, the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus gets to Im- interpret Scripture, the law according to God's intent, God's purposes, and we listen to what Jesus has to say because in Jesus, uh, God's words, God's God's law is fulfilled in Him. So when it comes to marriage, uh, we ought to start from the very beginning, as Jesus points us to the very beginning of creation. And that's where Jesus takes the Pharisees. He doesn't take them to Greco-Roman culture. He doesn't take them to Jewish tradition. He doesn't even take them to Mosaic law. He takes them to the very beginning, to God's purpose in creation, read in light of who he is and what he has come to do. So what we see is that marriage as a form, a marriage as a function, and marriage is a figure. Marriage as a form. God made them male and female and brought them into a one flesh union. Anything contrary to that is a violation of God's creational intent, no matter what our uh, desires tell us uh, and what, no matter what society tells us accepted norm. God's created form for marriage is male and female coming together as one flesh in marital, covenantal, permanent union. Marriage as a function is to multiply and fill the earth and it's not just propagation, it's to fill the earth with image bearers who are to the glory of God. God's intent in creation, God's function for all creation, including marriage, is that it would be to his glory. So when man and woman come together and multiply, it's God's image bearers who are multiply and fill the earth. Yes, the fall circumvented that, but God is going to fulfill his purposes. When at the return of Jesus Christ, it'll, again, people who have been perfected in the image of his son will fill the face of the new earth, and the new heavens and God's glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the function of marriage. But with all of that, marriage is only a figure that has an expiry date. Marriage points to who God is. Marriage is a figure that looks beyond itself and points to God. Uh, I read this uh, passage uh, from an essay by uh, C.S. Lewis uh, from his book, uh, God in the Dock*. Uh, Matt O'Reilly quotes that to support his, uh, uh, what Jesus says concerning marriage here as a figure. Uh, in God in the Dark, uh, Lewis imagines you going into a dark uh, tool shed and the door is cracked open and a beam of light comes in through that cracked door. Uh, and as you look at the beam of light, it's just, you see dust particles going up and down and you, you see, you've seen beams of light. But he says when you go and put yourself in the line of the beam and you look not at the beam but along the beam to the source of light, you see something completely different. You see the source of light. You see the rest of uh, w- what is seen by that light. So also, Matt O'Reilly says, uh, when you look at marriage, you look at it in all its difficulties, its hardships, its sin, uh, but when you look along marriage to what marriage ought to point to, you see God's intent for marriage. Marriage was not an end in itself. Marriage pointed to who God is, God's faithfulness, God's love, and that's God's intent for marriage. That's why um, I'm ahead of myself here, but uh, marriage, I said, has an expiry date, and that later on in Mark t- chapter 12, the, the Pharisees would come and ask, test him again, the Jewish leaders, about this uh, hypothetical woman who was married to seven, seven men, and they raised this question, the Sadducees there, uh, about whose wife she would be at the resurrection. And Jesus tells them, At the resurrection, there is no giving and taking of marriage, because at that time the figure has done its job and the reality has come. There's no longer, God uh, dwells with people and we see who God is. We don't need some figure pointing to God and that point marriage has fulfilled its purposes. Till then, marriage ought to and will continue according to God's purposes. Because marriage is God's idea, not ours. So what is marriage figure? First it figures this eternal love between differentiated beings. See, God is a self-sufficient being. Uh, there's nothing that he needs outside of himself. Uh, well how can god love if uh, because love requires an object so god may be created us because he needed an object to love no god within the godhead is the lover and the loved in that in, uh, in in between the father and son and spirit exists the most perfect and most glorious love and marriage points to that love in this love between these two equal but differentiated persons male and female when we as uh, as image bearers Marriage figures in pointing to the love between the, the self-giving love of the Trinitarian persons, where love is not toward the same, but toward the other. Uh, again, that's, when we speak against same-sex union, it's, it's primarily because of that. Because same-sex union is the love for the same, not love for the other. It no longer points to God's perfect love, where the love is for the other, the different, and it's a self-giving, self-sacrificing love, and marriage ought to point to that. Marriage also is a figure that points to God's faithfulness, God's covenant faithfulness to himself, to his people. That's why adultery is prohibited because it's not just a breaking of a promise, but a a promise that was broken, a promise that was intended to reveal the perfect righteousness of God Uh, because that's what marital faithfulness ought to point to. But when there's adultery, uh, it no longer does that. Same thing for divorce. Divorce is prohibited because we, we, we end the covenant prematurely. We distort the beauty and the image of God revealed through marriage. See, Divorce communicates that God is not faithful to his promises because we are not faithful as those who point to God uh, in, in what our marriages ought to point to. So faithful disciples don't look for loopholes as to what is Moses commanded us or uh, but to see God's promise uh, God's intent in marriage as a permanent institution Ephesians 5 marriage is a figure that points to the sacrificial love of Christ for his church divorce remarriage even distorts that because Christ will never reject his church Christ will not look for another bride So divorce in the church marks the imaging function of marriage Uh, and as i said earlier marriage also points to what god is going to do when christ returns when uh, marriage would have fulfilled its purposes so marriage from beginning to end points to who god is and what god has done for us in christ jesus and that's a great encouragement for all of us who are married and this marriage this message is not about singleness Singleness also is to the glory of God. Another message, maybe from First Corinthians seven, or other. Like even in Matthew 19, Jesus talks about being single according to God's calling for God's glory. Uh, if I bring that in, I can go for another half an hour, and I'm sure you don't want me to do that. We'll, 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 we'll do that on another occasion. But. To know that our marriages is far greater than about you and me and about one another, that we have the opportunity to point to the glory of God, his love, his faithfulness, gives us all the reason to work on our marriages. Because this is not a burden, but it's a privilege that you and I can somehow point to God in our relationship. But for this, we are not able in ourselves. We need the grace of God. Uh, Pastor Dave used to say that uh, uh, marriage is not the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, See, uh, in the, the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect, and sometimes we enter into marriage expecting that perfection. No, that ended in Genesis 3. But marriage in the way of the kingdom of God is marriage of not my will, but yours be done. Marriage according to... Kingdom way of life is the garden of Gethsemane. It's a constant yielding of the self for the sake of the other. That's what Christ did for us. And therefore, as those who follow after Christ, we are constantly to what he said earlier concerning discipleship, the first shall be last and 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 be the servant of all because that's what he did for us. And that's what uh, covenant faithfulness requires. So we, this is not where we begin. Quite often, you know, the romantic companionship way of marriage, so like, you know, we are, I found my perfect companion, so I'm entering into marriage, and, and then it fails, and then we, we find a way, we're looking for a way out, but that's not how marriage is supposed to work. We grow into that glorious purpose that God established for marriage, uh, a cross-shaped, other-centered love and faithfulness that points to the greater and perfect love and faithfulness of God within the Godhead and toward his, counsel, his, his covenant people. What a great privilege we have that we can witness to who God is and what he has done for us in Christ even through our marriages. So what about divorce and remarriage? You know, the Christians who want to hold to scripture have come to three different uh, positions concerning this. All three can be validated from scripture depending on how you interpret these passages that are involved. The, the, the easiest to defend is the one that says there's no divorce and no remarriage in light of the passages that we saw in Genesis 1 and Mark 12. God does not permit divorce. God, God did not create marriage for, uh, with divorce in mind and divorce is a permission for sin. But in the kingdom of God, uh, God calls us to a greater righteousness. So no remarriage, no divorce. But others, uh, the second position is remarriage the hardness of heart remains in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew 19 Jesus uh, speaks of uh, if anyone commit, uh, d- divorces his wife except for the case of adultery so he makes an exception there in two places in 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 Matthew so the second position says uh, divorce for biblically permitted grounds which is adultery and some others will bring abandonment because Paul permits uh, uh, a release from marital bonds when an unbeliever uh, abandons his wife. So they would say abandonment in that case, they would include abuse and other things that, are, uh, that fall into that category. So first is no divorce, no remarriage. Second is divorce for grounds that scripture seems to permit, whether it's uh, adultery or abandonment. And the third position, it says divorce for those same grounds. But if divorce has taken place on those grounds, then remarriage is permitted for those who are divorced because of adultery or because of uh, abandonment. Um, Where do we stand as a church? I I spoke with the elders earlier, and uh, we have elders who hold to all three of these, positions, not every person holds to all three, but there are some who hold to the first, some to the second, some to the third. Uh, And I spoke to them about where we stand as a church. Our church takes the third position where, on a case-by-case basis, where uh, divorce in the case of abandonment and adultery, yes, as a permission of God, as a concession, in light of human sinfulness and hard-heartedness. Divorce is always uh, a result of sin. Whether both parties or one party, uh, it's a result of sin. So divorce is not a good news in any sense, but it's permitted because of the hardness of heart. But but when such divorce has taken place case-by-case, As it is brought to the church, the church sees whether remarriage is permitted there or not. I hold to the second position. Uh, You could ask, how could you serve holding a different position? Because divorce and remarriage is an important issue. It's a a kingdom issue, but it's not one of the essentials of the doctrine. So uh, we stand united on the essentials, on the important issues. As long as we are able to come to a conviction based on scripture, we, uh, we can hold to that position. So why do we have all these different positions? Because we find that in Scripture, in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, Jesus provides an exception. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, adultery. Same thing in Matthew 19. But Luke, like Mark, does not give you an exception clause. Everyone who divorces his wife, no exception, and marries another commits adultery, very much like Mark. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 seems to follow what Mark and Luke say without any exception to the married that is married in the Lord, those were are believers, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. That is Jesus has spoken to this directly. Uh, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be re- reconciled to her husband. So Paul seems to recognize that the reality of divorce, but does not permit remarriage and the husband should not divorce his wife. In the case of an unbeliever abandoning a marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved, is no longer bound. God has called you to peace, he says. What about remarriage? Uh, those who hold to the third position, they think remarriage is permitted because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. In First Corinthians seven thirty-nine, when Paul speaks in the, on the case of a widowed person, a wife is bound to her husband in that marriage as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be from those bonds, to be re, to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. So, in the cla- in the case of a death of a spouse, Scripture clearly permits remarriage because that bond no longer exists; the one-flesh union no longer exists because one spouse has died. Uh, so, some would take that and extrapolate into that First Corinthians seven fifteen in the case of an abandoned for abandonment of a, by an unbeliever. So if the unbeliever partner, unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Uh, very similar to the same word that the wife is bound. That, so they say, uh, Paul here says the, in the case of abandonment, that person is no longer under the bond. Same type of language he is using in the case of a widowed person. So if Paul uh, allows a widowed person to remarry, Paul must also allow the unbound person to remarry it's a logical conclusion it's not an explicit statement from Scripture but logical enough for some believers to hold to it and uh, very people I highly respect hold to that Uh, I tend to be more aligning myself to align myself to uh, explicit teachings of the scripture so I don't see remarriage permitted whereas divorce seems to be in terms of first Corinthians I mean Matthew 5 and 19 Matthew chapter, five, Matthew chapter 19, same controversy as uh, uh, here in Mark. The disciples asked the wrong, right question at the end of that exchange. Mark doesn't record that for us. There, the disciples asked Jesus. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. You mean I'm going to be stuck with this guy or this woman for the rest of my life? Might as well not get married. Good question. Good, good thought. Right? See, marriage, as God intended, requires exclusivity, requires permanence, requires fidelity, and what marriage can live up to such standards. Even those of us who have been married for a long time, Laura and I, 23, 23, 23 years. Uh, it's it, I should be easy to remember. We got married in two thousand. So whatever the year is, as long as we are past May, that's how many years we have been married. So, but even with twenty-three years, I tell Laura all the time. Uh, you know, I'm married to you. It's purely God's grace. I don't deserve anyone like you, but I don't know what you did that God burdened me with you. Uh, <laughs> God is still working on her sanctification through me. No, but, but it doesn't matter however long you've been married. Hence, how long have you been married? So that's uh, 34 plus another 24. That's 58 years. Uh, 57, 50, yeah, that's a long time. Would you say that your marriage... Yes. That wasn't for my math. That's for your long marriage that they were... Cla- <laughs> uh, uh, but Hans, would you say that your marriage is perfect as God has intended? It? I would say that my wife and I love each other more today than we did Yes. So- that should be the testimony for each one of us. And there is more room to grow in that love, in that faithfulness, in the, uh, in, in, so marriage provides the context in which we can grow into our obedience with God and uh, as God summarizes obedience as love for God and love for one another. So marriage requires great deal of work if we are to meet God's standards. There are other passages of scripture, Ephesians chapter five, Colossians, and first uh, uh, Corinthians seven, and first Peter three. Uh, Study these passages as to what godly marriages ought to look like. Uh, Mark Mark 10 is not the only passage that's there. Quite often, uh, when we think of the difficulty of marriage, uh, and people say, who's capable of these things? And we call it quits. We we need to realize that God's grace is available for us. We often misunderstand God's grace as permission to sin. Uh, You know, the Old Testament stuff, you know, we have greater grace, so we can do whatever we want and God forgive. No, that's not how it works. Scripture clearly tells us that God has granted us the grace in His Son so that we may actually meet the righteous requirements of the law, not by our own strength, but by His Spirit through His grace. So Romans chapter 8 verses 1 to 4, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, hallelujah. Amen. But Mark, uh, Paul doesn't stop there. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, another hallelujah. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Meet God's standards. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law, God's creational intent for marriage, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So what we need to, to live according to God's purposes is only by the spirit of God. These are the marriages that God has put together, those who belong to him. Same thing in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared not to permit us to continue in sin, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passion, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, was zealous for was zealous for good works good works of marriages lived according to god's will and intent so how do we prevent divorce in among believers you know we uh before marriage we all uh speak of premarital counseling actually none of our pastors would be willing to conduct a marriage unless people go through a premarital counseling uh sessions with them but premarital Marital counseling, as good as it is, is not sufficient. Uh, Even the medical industry sees the need for uh, preventative care. Uh, They don't want you to go to the doctor after you get sick, but before you get sick to make sure that you remain healthy. So, also, our marriages require that maintenance, and the maintenance happens in this context of this family of God. You know, we put nuclear families as though they are the primary family in God's, uh, uh, among God's people. Now, the primary family is this one and in this family we take care of these nuclear families so don't wait till your mass marriage it's a crisis point where the only solution is divorce and then seek help then it's too late sin has taken its course in such a way that it's hard to come back but if we go through this preventative care by of uh, speaking to one another in love in uh, maintaining marital fidelity and int- intimacy our marriages can be to the glory of God uh, Jim and Kathy Canary and, and the Colmans are going to lead a, a marital enrichment uh, group for couples starting in a few weeks, uh, end of October? Uh, first Sunday of November. November. It will be after, during the first during, during the second service. So, so there's something that f- for you to look forward to whether you're already married or you're looking to get married. Say, same also, Todd and Sharon are leading a class on marital intimacy that meets on Thursdays, but I believe you're going to offer it again on Sunday eventually on Sunday mornings as well. So that will be another thing for you to consider to, to prevent um, ungodly intrusions into your marriage and to, li- uh, to, to live according to God's intent for marriage. Those of you who look for books, I've loved using three books for my premarital counseling sessions, but they're also good for marriages. John Henderson's Catching Foxes, you know, foxes that ruin the vineyards. So Catching Foxes, A Gospel-Guided Journey to Marriage by John Henderson. Or Paul David Tripp, he has a book called Marriage, Six Gospel Commitments Every Couple Needs to Make. It used to be called What Did You Expect? <laughs> but it's now called Marriage, Six Gospel Commitments Every Couple Needs to Make. And Dave Harvey's book, When Sinners Say I Do. All useful resources, no matter what, whether you've been married for 58 years or you're, married, you're just getting married or considering marriage, these are good resources for you to see what is God's expectation and what are God's resources. And what are God's ways for a godly marriage? If you're here this morning and you are divorced, or if you have remarried after divorce and God has brought conviction, know that marriage, uh, divorce and remarriage are not unforgivable sins. The same provision that God has made for all sin is available for this as well. If we confess our sin, agree with God that what we did was wrong, He's faithful and just to forgive, forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Confess, repent, confess, receive God's forgiveness. Go in the joy of God's forgiveness because of what Jesus has done for you. But if you're here, whether you're married or unmarried, divorced or remarried, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, you still remain in your sin. And you're not living according to the flourishing that God intends for your life. But you have God's promise today, if you trust in what Jesus Christ has done, agree with God that you're a sinner, that you're separated from him, trust in what God has done to bridge that gap, that Christ has taken away your sins through his death on the cross and and from rising from the dead. If you believe that God, you have God's word that your sins will be forgiven and you have new life as God's child. Why would you wanna miss out on the abundant life that only God can give? Trust in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's God's promise. If you do that, come and talk to us. We would love to talk to you. If you have questions, come and talk to us. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this glorious institution of marriage that you established to point to you, who you are and uh, uh, your goodness to us, God. I, we confess that we've, whether our marriages are uh, uh, ongoing or ended, we, we don't often live according to your intent for our life as in other things in life. We thank you for your forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray that you would form us in such a way individually and in our marital relationships to live in such a way that our lives point to you, the God who is loving, the God who is faithful, the God who has sent his son to redeem us and make us your own forever. Thank you that you're able to do this in our lives through your spirit, for we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.